19. And uh, I thought this was interesting because we're getting into a, a major, major struggle. And uh, so this week and next week, as we look at the rest of the chapter, uh, we're dealing here with uh, matters of, of uh, being victorious <laughs> in Jesus. Now, there's a real difference between fighting a battle in your own strength or letting God fighting. When I was a, a teenager and I weighed 128 pounds <laughs> and was taller than I am now, I've shrunk in my old age, I, I was on the wrestling team. And I remember, you know, all the workouts we went to and I went out this one day and I wrestled a guy that was about as tall as me. And my dad, who was watching in the stand, said it looked like spaghetti out there on the mat. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know that I took this uh, approach to uh, fighting very seriously, to be honest. I've not been one that's been... Uh, uh, very rambunctious when it comes to actually hitting people. Um, when it comes to playing games, I can be very <laughs> aggressive. Aggressive, by the way, is the word that we were looking for last week when I couldn't remember what the word was. We, we said it was anger, but it was aggressiveness. And, uh, but I can be very aggressive if we're, we're playing some game or I'm trying to, to get a puzzle solved. I, I'll go after it. Um, but in the scriptures, it's interesting the difference between battles that they had to fight for their existence, what Israel had to fight for their existence, and battles that um, God fought on their behalf. And there seemed to be a real difference between that. And, and we can see that in several different instances. Like they fought the Battle of Jericho <laughs> by marching around the city 13 times and blowing a trumpet. I mean, seriously. And then the walls fall down. I mean, it's just, or, or you have Gideon who raises an army and has to keep sending people home until he gets down to 300. And he goes up against thousands with 300. And they stand there with a, with a torch under a pot. They break the pot <laughs> and, and watch everybody flee, go right past them. They're standing around, <laughs> 300 standing around the enemy camp. And, and they, the enemy flees. Or, or you have uh, the king of Aram going up against uh, um, Israel, and they can't win. And they said, well, why is that? And they said, well, it's because there's a prophet, Elisha, in, in, your, in, in their camp. And he tells, he tells his people uh, what you say in your bedroom. <laughs> and, and he says, well, go get him. So... Uh, Elisha wakes up one morning, and this whole army is outside the wall, uh, out there to get him. And his servant gets up, and he goes, whoa, <laughs> it looks like they're here to kill us all. And, and he just looks at him, and he says, don't you know that those that are for us are more than those that are against us? And he's looking out there, and he sees the two of them, <laughs> and he sees this army out there. And he goes, oh, Lord, open his eyes. And he opens his eyes, and he can see all these angels round about. And then, so now you've got all the angels against this whole army of King Har Aram. 
And, and uh, I mean, the, the Bible's full of these incredible stories, isn't it? And, and then the, and then the, uh, the uh, prophet Elisha says, Lord, strike him with blindness. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, how do you fight a battle? He says, Lord, strike him with blindness. And so everybody is struck with blindness. And he goes out and says, who are you looking for? They said, well, we're looking for Elisha. He says, well, come with me. I'll take you to him. <laughs> And so Elisha leads this whole army that's blind <laughs> into the city of Samaria. They get inside the city, and, he, and then he, he says, Lord, open their eyes. They open their eyes and realize that they're all captive now <laughs> in Samaria. And the king of Samaria wants, wants to kill them all. And he says, what are you going to do that for? You know, I mean, that's silly, because if you, if you capture somebody in battle, you don't kill them, you know. You, you give them something to eat. So he says, you give, give them something to eat. And so here the, 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 the king goes, oh, oh, okay. And instead of just giving them some bread and water, he lays out a feast and feeds the whole army. I mean, is this incredible? This is in 2 Kings chapter 6, in case you're interested in reading about the story. And the entire army leaves the city after they've all eaten and been guests of the king in Samaria, uh, and they leave, and God puts peace. The king of Aram says, we're not going to fight them anymore. Here they come to capture Elisha, and the end result is far greater than just the enemy being defeated. But the way in which God won the battle between these two enemies and to bring peace between them. <laughs> Is that incredible? When the battle belongs to the Lord, you have no idea how he's going to resolve the battle. There's no way that I could have imagined that when Elisha shows up outside the city to capture Elisha, that God actually had as his intention to bring peace between two nations. Interesting, isn't it? And so often we get caught up when it comes to battles to get involved in the political issues or to get involved in the, in the, in the social issues and we forget that we don't battle against flesh and blood. We're not here to judge and to condemn. We're here to love people who don't know any better than to sin because that's how they've always lived their lives. And if we don't demonstrate the love of God to them, they're not going to get set free. And so in the whole process, when I understand the battle is not ours, but it's the Lord's, then it becomes an entirely different way in how I deal with the enemies, both the enemy of my soul and the enemies who are against everything that I stand for. Uh, just think about this for a minute. There's not a whole lot of difference between the moral values of our nation today where they slaughter unborn children, where promiscuity is rampant. We were watching this, this simple 
you know, romantic comedy the other day on TV, and it seemed like the moment in this movie was the statement, rules are made to be broken. I'm going, lady, you have no idea. God's rules are not meant to be broken. They're meant to guard and protect your soul and give you eternal life. You, you see how, how diabolically opposed the thinking of the world is against the thinking that comes by the word of God. Two entirely different approaches. And it's that way throughout. So we understand that the real battle is against the hearts and souls that are being attacked regularly by an enemy who is the devil and his demons. And their desire is to rob us of every blessing in the heavenly places that's reserved for us who are the children of God. That's a battle. But it's not a battle that I can win by attacking the various issues that the other side proposes as being good. I have to fight this on my knees and then I need to respond in the way that God wants me to respond in order for God to tear down all the, the values that they hold dear but that are so wrong. They have to be confronted with the truth. They have to be overwhelmed by the presence of God. Battles are won on our knees and not with the gun. That's just the way it is. I mean, do whatever God tells you to do, please. <laughs> but when it comes down to understanding how we fight, we need to pick up the weapons of our warfare, which are things like truth, peace, righteousness. As a matter of fact, if you read Ephesians chapter 6, it actually tells you what does our... It's the gospel of peace. That's what our feet carry. A helmet of salvation. Forget about helmets and swords and stuff. Just think about what they represent. Salvation... That's deliverance from evil. That is being made whole. That's a weapon. The word of God, trusting, believing, following the word of God, that becomes a weapon. It's a weapon that strengthens your heart against all the onslaughts. Truth, righteousness, The gospel, message of the cross and the resurrection. So, so the weapons that we have are really, by the way, in case you didn't catch all that, we, we, we did that on Wednesday night. <laughs> it was part of our study on prayer. It's an important aspect of prayer. You see, our enemy cannot defeat Jesus because he's already been whipped. His power is diminishing and he will spend his eternity in hell. That's the truth. And anything that he might try to do to 
upset and destroy and attack us in any way, he cannot win. The joy of knowing Jesus is for us. We know that Jesus is for us. We know he's not against us. Not only is that comforting, but that's important. Now, let's take a look at how the war begins and how the war is fought. Turning to Acts chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name those over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in, his, in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, there is so much in these scriptures. I, I, I almost hate to go through it as quickly as I am, and you know how slow that is. <laughs> I have to go back for just a few minutes to last Sunday and review something that I wasn't, didn't have the time to share. So I'm going to do it now. You'll notice that when these people had been rebaptized, which is something that the Germans today are still very anti, they get mad at anybody who gets rebaptized. Um, whereas the question is, were they baptized by faith into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? That's the question you have to answer. And if you have been, then that's good. If you haven't, then get baptized. Now, in this, uh, in this process, they came up out of the water, and then he laid hands on them. And I read in several, I have read in many different um, accounts um, and commentaries that this is an apostolic blessing. This is something that was given to the apostles, something that they could do. And I, um, I really need 
to share this with you because this is, I think, a critical aspect between an understanding of the nature and function and purpose of a church and how tradition has maligned the purpose, function, and avenue of the church. When you start to say this is a particular apostolic thing, first of all, you need to find that you have the supporting evidence in Scripture. Second, you need to see how that kind of thinking has evolved within the life of the church to develop a, a distance between clergy and the congregation. And you see that you have certain people that are then recognized and I must admit, I certainly appreciate putting on my little pastor's tag when I go to New Hanover Regional Medical Hospital because I can just walk right in. <laughs> and nobody's going to stop me and I go straight to the rooms. That, that's wonderful. The, the real issue here is, though, is not that there is a difference between those that stand up here on a platform and those that are sitting in the pew. That's not the issue. And I, I really want to come back and look at this. When it comes to things like um, the, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, we have instances where it happens without the laying on of hands. We have instances where it happens after baptism. We have instances where it happens before baptism. We have people who came, for example, Ananias, who comes to, to Paul while he's blind and fasting and not eating or drinking anything. And he says, the Lord Jesus sent me to lay hands on you that you might receive your sight and receive the Holy Spirit. And that's the only time we read about him. We have no idea whether he was a church leader, whether he was an elder or deacon. All we know is that God spoke to this guy and said, you're faithful, I'm using you, you go and do it. <laughs> and he goes and he does it. And it happens. We don't know at that moment whether Paul spoke in tongues. We do. He writes later, he says, I... I pray in tongues more than all of you. <laughs> you know, I mean, never know when it happened or how it happened. So in, in the process, I take a look at what people have tried to say that there are only those who have the ability to do this and those who don't. In, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, let me see if I've had a chance to put these verses down here. I may have not, didn't have a chance to do it. But I'll read it to you. I'll just pull it up here. In Hebrews 6, it says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings or baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and this we shall do if God permits. Notice that he says, we need to press on to maturity. Don't lay again a foundation. And he lists these five things, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, and faith towards God instead of death, dead works. And I look at those five things that he says these are foundational, elemental for all people. And not just for pastors and bishops and 
priests or however you want to talk about it. These are basic things that the church is supposed to be involved in. Now you start to think about what happens if you win somebody to Christ. You pray with somebody and they ask Jesus into their lives. And you take that person, you bring them down here, we fill up the baptistry and you baptize them. And we all rejoice with you both. What happens when you go and somebody's sick and you put your hands on them and you pray for them and they get well? What happens when, when you are being involved in, in telling people about the resurrection from the dead, having faith in God and to flee eternal judgment? See, these are things that are foundational to the whole life of the church. It's not for a select few. Does God give gifts? Yes, he does. Look at the gifts that he gives in Ephesians chapter 4 to his church. Jesus gives his church leaders. In, 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 in these leaders are called apostles, prophets. They're, they're called uh, teachers, evangelists, pastors. And, and in the process why does he give these leaders to the church as a gift? So that they can be honored and set apart and become a group unto themselves? No. He gives them so that the church can be equipped to do the work of ministry. If I am not here encouraging you to do the work of ministry, I am not worthy to be here. Do you understand that? This is not me going out trying to develop the Brad Thurston thing. No, this is God wanting to use whatever faulty and, and in, in, uh, incapable ministry that I have to encourage each one of you to be all that God wants you to be. That's why I'm here. Now that doesn't mean that I've played God and tell you what to do and not what to do and no, but I can sure pray for you, and I, can, and I do. And this is important that we understand that the, the difference is not between laity and clergy. If people do their job really well, they're worthy of double honor, the scripture says. That's, that's marvelous. But it has nothing to do with putting people onto a pedestal. It has to do with the life of the church. And when I take a look at what what Paul was doing, he is training these other 12 no-name disciples by his demonstration and by what he is doing. He is a mentor to them. How do you think that throughout all of this region the gospel was being proclaimed? Paul didn't do it on his own. There was a multiplication taking place within the life of the church and the church was doing the work of the ministry. That's what was happening. The thrill of what happens when, when we come to understand that God is equipping each one of us. That is an incredible insight to what the church is supposed to be and how it functioned originally and how God intends for the church to function. It, it, it's Jesus who is the head. He is the Lord of his church. He is the one who builds his church. It's not my battle. It's not even your battle. 
And how he's going to do it is going to amaze us all. I, I, I think that's the most incredible thing, that, that it happens because we're caught up in the absolute wonder of the cross, like we have sung about and we shared in communion this morning, that we tend to go out with an incredible message of hope and deliverance. And what you and I cannot do, we're not doctors, we can't heal the sick. True? As a matter of fact, even the doctors can't heal the sick. <laughs> I praise God for all the doctors and nurses. I'm so grateful for them. And I'm grateful for the people who who God gives all kinds of insight into developing robots that help put my stomach in order. Thank you, Lord. I appreciate that. I really do. The robot didn't heal me. The doctors didn't heal me. Healing comes from the Lord. The, 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 the truth is that we can't cast out evil spirits. And the exciting thing about this particular scripture that we looked at is that Luke makes a clear difference between the activity of the Holy Spirit and the activity of evil spirits. And that there is a real difference between the two. And when people do not have God's Spirit dwelling in them, they are not effective. This Jesus whom Paul preaches, <laughs> I cast you out, I adjure you. And he says, well, I know Jesus. <laughs> I know who he is. <laughs> I'm well aware of who he is. <laughs> He's the one that was raised from the dead. Don't you talk to me about him. You know, Paul, I've heard about him. He, he's pretty interesting. Isn't it interesting they've only heard about Paul? So Paul's not even involved in any of this. They heard about Paul, but he says, who are you? Who are you? You go into the battle without the proper preparation and warfare and weapons, <laughs> look out. Look out. I, we don't spend a lot of time in, in the presence of, of uh, the demonic that we consider. I want to tell you, though, that a lot of the thinking that's going on in our nation today that they call all kinds of stuff, really is demonic. And they're trying to make it look good. You see, the, 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 the fact is, they are constantly attacking the word of God, saying, has God said, is that really true? And they do that in all kinds of different ways. And if you take a stand to say, this is what God's word says, and I believe it, They'll cart you off to jail. We, we, we live in, a, in an era where demonic thinking, demonic influence is rampant, and even within the church, it can have an influence. When several of the folks in the Hallmark Channel decided they wanted to leave Hallmark because of what was uh, slowly moving into homosexuality on their, on, on their programs, and then they said something like, we believe in traditional family values, and then have to apologize for what they say? That's horrible. Why can't I believe in traditional family values? Why can't I stand up 
He means what he says, says what he means, and it's, it doesn't change. Why do I have to try to twist God's word around to make it say what I want it to say when it should be changing me and twisting me around and changing me instead? And in the process, as we start to look at this battle, this demonic battle in the, in the, in the, in the realms that we're with, and it starts to influence the thinking, even within some churches where people start to say, and that there's a big split in the, in the Methodist church right now over the homosexual issue. And, we, and people sit up and they say, but, but God is love. And I'm going, yeah, God is love. And he will destroy sin because of his love. And he robs you of the power of sin in your life. And he comes to protect you from temptation. He comes to set you free from the demonic forces that are trying to grab a hold of your life and your mind and your thinking. And you think that's... They practiced temple prostitution back then. They had orgies in the, in the time of the Caesars throughout all of Rome. Do you think it was any different then than it is now? It's not. They dealt with the same issues, moral issues, that we deal with today. And Paul stands up to face the idolatry and he faces it with boldness in such a way that the people who practiced witchcraft brought their books and all of their stuff. We've done this. I've done this in many different countries where witches and, and warlocks and, and people who, who, who were diviners and everything else would bring their stuff and we'd have a little bonfire and burn the stuff. And people would praise God that they had been set free. They would watch their evil things burn. I've done that. I've seen it. I have not seen several million dollars being burnt. 50,000 pieces of silver would have the value today of several million dollars. Can you imagine what they brought together for a bonfire? To burn? To say we are not going to allow these things to have control over our hearts and our minds. We're going to separate ourselves from them. We're going to separate ourselves from the demonic things in this world, the lies that have been told us. We're going to separate ourselves from them. This is not the truth. This is not what, what we want to follow anymore. We want the deliverance that comes from knowing Jesus and the power of the resurrection. That's what we want to follow. You can imagine what's going to happen in the next reading for next week because there's going to be a riot. <laughs> if you start taking all this stuff, not only are they getting rid of it, they're not buying anymore. They're going to attack an entire industry because of the change that's taking place in their hearts. The battle that starts off is with individuals who are going to give up both their thinking and their practices that are contrary to the things that God wants to do within our lives according to the word that he gives us. And they're saying, we're, we're going to leave this. We're not going to live in the perversity. 
where people take God's word and pervert it. That's perversity. Whatever God says, you change it, it's perversion. That's what perversion is, okay? And to be really honest. It's, and, and whatever it is, whether it's, it's, uh, it deals with, with any moral area or any, any legal area, if it's not right and truth and upright and righteous, it's something that you need to repent of, turn away from. That's what that means. If it's not that, then don't get involved in it. We got married, Jan said to me, so there's one thing I don't want you ever to do, I don't want you to lie to me. <laughs> wow. It was easy to say, that, that's, well, that's the way it'll be. <laughs> it's another thing when you actually face up to your own misdeeds and have to confess them. Entirely different story then. When you make that kind of commitment, then you make that commitment to Jesus. Now, here's this battle that's being fought, and at this moment in time, as great as it is, because of the size of the people throughout Asia that are starting to come together which is absolutely astonishing to me because Paul is teaching in the school of Tyrannus. That's where he is. So therefore, the multiplication is taking place through the people that he has trained and who they are training. And the multiplication is happening from one to the other. You see, the, the gifts that Jesus gives to his church he gives leaders and administrators and everything else in order for it to function, but it is the life of all together. That's what the people need to see. They need to see our love for one another. They need to see our commitment to one another. They need to see our support and encouragement of one another. Thank you, Ivy. Ivy found out that Jen had COVID, and she wrote twice asking if she could come by and bring some soup. Thank you so much. That really touched our hearts, seriously. And I'm glad that it wasn't a major case like they used to be three years ago. <laughs> we, we had very mild, Jen had a very mild case. So, but, but that's the kind of thing that demonstrates the love that says we are a body, we are the body of Jesus. And together, all of our gifts are going to complement and supplement one another in order for people to see it. That, that's, that's a church. It, it, it's not something that we organize, but it is something that God begins to organize. And when we stand for the things that have to be the gospel, it is an offense. It offends people. If you say that homosexuality if you were to say that homosexuality is perversity and that God is going to judge homosexuals and that no homosexual or adulterer is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, wait a minute. If you take that kind of a stand, a moral stand, you start talking about children that are being killed when the American Constitution or built... You know, it says that, that we 
have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and yet we rob millions of lives of the right to life. Think about those kinds of things. Where Tony Dungy, a committed Christian, stands up in the Washington Mall and says, and says that he is against abortion and then they lower the boom on him and tell him that he should no longer have the right to be a commentator on TV. <laughs> We're talking about warfare here. We're talking about warfare. The gospel is an offense. But I want to also tell you that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. When we come up against the offense and the offenders and the ones who, who come out to get us, whether it's in the Ukraine, whether it's in, in behind the, uh, the bamboo curtain or wherever it is, where the Muslims attack Christians, whether it's in Nigeria or in Mozambique and kill them all off. And in, the, in the middle of all of this, we come together and we know that the battle is the Lord's. And where there is difficulty and the gospel proves to be an offense, it's an offense to those who deny Jesus. And it wouldn't offend them if it weren't the case that so many of their own people were coming to know Jesus. When they see that people are beginning to be transformed by the power of the gospel, the enemy comes in like a flood. And the Lord raises up a standard. And that's the exciting thing, that we know that in the midst of this kind of a battle, we cannot lose. I take a look at what Paul does as he sends out two of his most trusted, worthy disciples, Timothy and Erastus, sends them out ahead of him to do the work of ministry. He doesn't have to be with them anymore because they are already equipped to do the work. He spent time training them, and now he sends them out on ahead, and he's able to stay and continue to do what God has called him to do. This reproduction and multiplication is a critical aspect of the life of the church that's going to continue to grow. We need that kind of power that you give Notice that it was when the disciples were endued with the power of the Holy Spirit that this kind of growth across cultures to Jews and Greeks alike that happens throughout the life of the church takes place. It's amazing. The excitement of knowing Jesus and seeing him at work, not just in our lives, but then through our lives into the lives of others is a dynamic that's valuable and oh so important. And God wants that in each one of us. When we come to Jesus and we demonstrate our love for him, wow, what, a, what an amazing thing. In our lives, 
we need to make a decision. Are we going to stand for what is righteous even if we are assaulted for our stand? Are we willing to let the Lord fight for us as opposed to trying to battle ourselves? Do we know that those who are for us are more than those who are against us? Can we trust God to be our shield and our protection to keep us and to deliver us from evil? Salvation comes with the trust we need to place our faith in and our hope in Jesus. I, I, just, I just think that we need to understand that we're warriors in a different kind of war. And the people who are against us don't understand either the character nature of that war. They just think that they're doing what's best for themselves. And yet we come not with swords, guns. We come with the word of the Lord. The power that comes in the gospel of peace. Lord Jesus, equip each one of us to be a minister of life. We ask it, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can meet with God where you are. You can come down front.